0: This episode of Sovereign Tech is dedicated to Sean Connery and Alex Trebek. The hero cannot live without the villain. Why does the sun come up? Hmm? Or are the stars just pinholes in the curtain of night? Who knows? What I do know is that because you were born different, men will fear you, try to drive you away. Like the people of your village. Ah! You must learn to conceal your special gift and harness your power until the time of the gathering. What gathering? (laughs) bye <laughs> Accessing Historical Database. Year 2020. The tech giants become aware of the greatest threat to their corporatist domination. An obscure science and tech podcast becomes a major factor in a peaceful open-source revolt against the military-Silicon Valley industrial complex. The Podcast, Sovereign Tech. Its host, Dr. Brian Sovereign. The tech giants tried to stop sobbing tech. They can't.
1: Woo! Because you know what they say. That the most dangerous man in the world is the man against the status quo. And so you know. There's no one more dangerous than me, the golden stallion, the man of Tomorrow, top zoo, the rated R radio star, ready to bring it all on again for some sovereign tech. We have so much to get into. Uh, This might be a somewhat non-traditional episode. Uh, we might have to skip a couple segments. There are so many things I want to make sure that we get into this show. And there is so much that has happened since the last time we convened for this little gathering. And, you know, I kind of, if you want to be outside of the status quo, you know what I think a great way to go about that is <laughs> you know, let's just open this right up. Let's, let's, let's get into it because again, there is so much to talk about so much to break down. Let's open this up with, well, something I mentioned in a recent episode that boy, if you want a real, if you want one of the most secure computers in the world, the best thing you can do right now is run a Raspberry Pi four with Ubuntu 2010. Well that proposition just got a lot more interesting with a new release. It's called the Raspberry Pi 400, 70 bucks flat. Okay. 70 bucks. And you are going to get with this. In fact, what's really beautiful about it. Basically it's a Raspberry Pi four. Okay. Now the only problem here is that it's the four gig model. Uh, four gigabytes of RAM instead of the eight gig. And I don't think you can buy the eight gig. I'm sure you could probably, you know, just the mindset that comes along with Raspberry Pi. I'm sure you could open this thing up and replace it with, uh, you know, the eight gig version of the Raspberry Pi. But anyway, it's the four gig version, but you're effectively buying the Raspberry Pi version of the Commodore 64. And that's what I love about this damn thing. And for only 70 bucks, I mean, a really great kit, that will have everything minus keyboard and mouse and monitor. A really uh a great kit, like from Canakit or, or some of those, uh, you know, will will cost you around a hundred bucks. Uh, so this this price is actually really competitive and really good. Again, it's taking what is quote unquote a more or less official, which there are official Raspberry, you know, officially branded Raspberry Pi uh mice and keyboards. Um, but it, I mean, here it is, it's the keyboard. It has access to the, uh, the GPIO header is right there on the back of it. So you're not losing access to that. You have all the USB ports. Um, you have the ethernet port, everything's all along the back. I mean, it just, it's really, it just looks like a Commodore 64 more or less in the abstract, you know, because it's a computer and a keyboard. It looks like, uh, yeah, it looks like a Commodore 64, but you know, it, it's just, it's a Raspberry Pi in this case you know, slap Ubuntu 2010 on this thing. And I mean, you've got yourself a great computer going forward. Uh, I I think just a, just a brilliant proposition and I would love it because I'll tell you, in fact, we're going to get into this in, in the foreplay before we even get into our main stories. And we have stories that, uh, you know, we, we have dues that are going to get paid in this episode okay. That are relevant to uh, the last episode, episode 394, this episode 395. We are only five episodes away from episode 400 Woo! because this show has been going a decade strong, baby. But I, uh, we, we have to get in. We're, we're going to, yes, no, we have to, we have to talk about, it. I usually hate saying that. I hate it when like journalists and outlets use a, oh, we have to talk about last night's whatever stupid fucking show on the planet. Okay. No, this is a case where we have to talk about what's happening in, happening in computing. And really what's happening is, is that the world is getting the fuck away from Intel. And I'm not complaining for a second especially you know after a spectre meltdown all of that uh, and and there have been i mean we could do a whole show on the intel exploits that have just been revealed throughout 2020 but even really within the past month or two i mean i i think if you follow me on twitter or if you're in the sovereign tech telegram group i mentioned in both places you know i'm basically to the point speaking of the raspberry pi i'm basically to the point of where Basically, all I want running in my house is a Raspberry Pi 4 powering Nextcloud and I'll just think line everything else <laughs> outside of that. I mean that that's the stage that I've gotten to here. Um I mean cuz Intel is such a mess. Yes, there's AMD, well aware, you know, and Ryzen chips, big fan, uh, especially because of you know the potential that was ex- that well, I don't know how much anybody's taken advantage of this, but the potential that it could have rocked, you know, a uh, Libreboot. I mean that was uh well, anyway, that's a big conversation. But bottom line, I mean, for 70 bucks here, folks, let's get back to the point. You know, for 70 bucks, you can rock that Raspberry Pi 4. But everybody's getting away from Intel. You know we're gonna talk about Apple. And again, this would be a very secure platform. Go ahead, rock Ubuntu 2010 on this, or you know, turn it into a little well, I don't know if that it would exactly make sense to turn it into a Nextcloud server because I mean, you could set it up as a separate computer to access, you know, Nextcloud. but regardless, uh, this is a great option, a, a solid computer, especially now that that Ubuntu is fully compatible right out of the gate with ever since version 2010 to function on a Raspberry Pi, uh, with Raspberry Pi four specifically, there's no reason not to run it. I mean, really, uh, that that's the way to go. This is a solid machine for only 70 bucks. Now you're not going to get your monitor. You're, uh, I, I do believe it comes with the, with the, with the mouse. Um, you're not going to have your monitor, so you know you'll, you'll need one of those. But that's, I always feel like monitors are kind of a personal preference anyway. Some people like their, you know, really, really ultra wide screens. Some people like their smaller stuff, you know, whatever you're into, uh, or hell. I mean, you, you, maybe you just have, you know, a TV that you're hooking up all your retro consoles to similar to, I do that, that where you could just hook up a, you know, an HDMI cable to it and, and boom, it turns into a computer when you want it that way. Uh, I just, I think this is such a, uh, it's cute. <laughs> all right. And then <laughs> cute and utility do not often come together. Okay. <laughs> maybe the only time that ever does is I don't know, Kirby. <laughs> Acute and utility rarely comes together, but this is one of those cases where it did link is in the show notes. I really, really recommend you check it out. I know a lot of people, uh, cause we did have the conversation when Ubuntu 2010 finally went live out of beta, uh, you know, just how exciting it was that it would be on a fairly secure platform. I mean, we, and we talked about this when Spectre and Meltdown, when those exploits were first announced, we talked about how and I was blown away. It was, it was almost a side note, but I don't think enough people paid attention. Just, just how the raspberry Pi was immune to the whole situation. And that's nothing to scoff at. So I think this is just a, a dynamite little computer to get your hands on, go for it. Um, and, and, you know, so the other thing, nice thing about a raspberry Pi, you know, so packable, you know, but I mean, here you go, 70 bucks and you, you've got everything you need all in one. Uh, you know, again, minus the monitor, of course, but otherwise, I, I mean, I just I think it's slick. Uh, let's move on from that though, and talk about. Well, I guess this is just the the natural fit to get into. Um, but you know, you know, actually, I'm going to hold off because there's something there's something very exciting to discuss here. I'm just going to spend a minute on it. I am not because we've already had massive conversations about, uh, around this in 2020. Um, there are very, there are shakeups happening in the podcast space in 2020. Everybody knows what's going on with like Joe Rogan and Spotify. Um, Apple might be buying entire podcast platforms. Now that's being discussed. We're about to talk about Apple, um, but the thing now, so there was uh Amazon music they added in and we I've, ta- I've talked with the sovereign tech community since this initially came, basically Amazon reached out to certain podcasters, not all. They reached out to certain podcasters. You did not reach out to them. They reached out to you It's an invite situation. What are the metrics? What, you know, allowed you to get the invite? I don't, I, to this day, I don't know. Okay. Um, what, you know, what was behind that regardless, sovereign tech got invited, a lot of podcasts that some may want to call my peers or contemporaries did not still have not gotten that invite. Um, but it was, I don't know, two, three weeks ago that we, that it finally went live. It was, I think it was in October, uh, early October or maybe September, but regardless, just, just recently, uh, that podcasts went live available in Amazon music. Now, the real, any, any actual excitement around that really comes from the fact that Amazon music is so tied with, um, with podcasts, or I mean, so tied with, uh, with echoes, right. With echo devices and Alexa. So, you know, now, you know, having easy access to podcasts, I mean, look, you can say nobody uses Amazon music, but that's not the point. Okay. (laughs) What matters is, is that you are actually accessible and easily accessible to Amazon's Alexa. Okay. That's really, you know, really the, the important, you know, if there's anything to take away from being included in Amazon music, that's it. Now I know that, that Alexa also plays well with, you know, Pandora, which Sovereign Tech is on Pandora plays well with TuneIn, which Sovereign Tech is on TuneIn. Sovereign Tech's everywhere. Okay. In fact, I don't think there's another podcast in my class as it were. And when I say my class, yeah, I know it's a tech show, but let's say in the more, uh, liberty, personal liberty kind of space they' just, they're, they're not in all the places that sovereign tech is we're on top of every fucking game regardless. Um, the, so with Amazon music that happened and you know, they, they let everybody know about launch day, please use this hashtag, blah, blah, blah. I did it, you know, so everybody knows about it. When I got the invite, it also had an invite to, to it, what it, the invite said, it would be audible slash Amazon music. Now I was surprised when Amazon music was really the first one to have podcasts available, but just as of th- this morning with this recording, <laughs> okay. Uh, I now know, and, and it was totally just, just a fluke that I found out about this. Basically I was looking to see what new, cause a lot of new star Wars books were announced like the, Uh, the sequel to, or the the second book in the new Thrawn uh, trilogy, the Thrawn ascendancy trilogy, whatever they want to call that, uh, that that was coming. So I went to audible to look and when I was scrolling through and I said it by time, I was scrolling through on the site and suddenly all these star Wars podcasts appeared. And I'm like, well, what, what, where'd these come from? Why are these here? You know? (laughs) And so just, you know, whatever it's 6 AM. <laughs> so it's like, okay, let's type in sovereign tech and see what happens. And lo and behold, sovereign tech is there. Okay. Now, again, this is all part of, you know, me getting invited into the Amazon ecosystem you know, and with their podcasts, uh, again, not an alien thing. They've been, they did this with a lot of video shows for Twitch, like angry video game nerd and some others where they invited them to be on there. Uh, and, so anyway, now if you want, and I know a lot of you do use audible, uh, I do as well, obviously sovereign tech is available and it really like it, it works and it's fairly nice. You can download the episodes. Um, you can review episodes, uh, singularly or singly. You can, you can, re- you can review them, give you know, whatever, and please, I, I, implore you to do so. You can leave a review for the entire podcast, similar to what, you know, Apple podcast slash iTunes, uh, has done. Um, so those, you know, that's a possibility for you right now. If you want one less app to install, or perhaps you are somebody who's running some kind of Android rig that maybe you're only using the Amazon app store because you want to stay away from Google. We're going to talk about that in this episode. Okay. Uh, maybe, uh, might even title it the, the Google life, uh, as it were. And so anyway, say, you know, you're just, you're running through the Amazon app store, Uh, you know, so you can get, or maybe you're mainly running through F-Droid, but you have the Amazon app store so you can get access to Audible, whatever, however that's working out for you. Okay. Uh, you know, if you need one less podcast app, well, here you go. Now, like I said, not every podcast is on there. Um, there are a lot that I'm actually very surprised are not available on there, but the main podcasts that I listen to, and I really only listen to regularly a couple outside of. Uh, well, I mean, I do listen back to my own show, you know, just to make sure everything sounded all right. But, (laughs) um, but I mean, the only, you know, I listen to Eddie trunk and I listen to security now with Steve Gibson, of course my hero, but both of those are available, uh, you know, within the audible app. Now I will say this, and this was kind of disappointing. Maybe it'll come down the line as soon as it was available on audible. And I've talked about this ever since we talked about the idea that audible would be putting, you know, podcasts in the app. They are not available for download on your Kindle, like say your Kindle Oasis or your Kindle paper, uh, paperwhite. So your your Kindle e-readers, not tablets, but your e-readers not available, at least at this time, they are not available there, but I don't know when this went live and nobody's announcing it. Like I I was looking, I was like, you know, come on, Verge has got to be talking about it. Somebody has got to be talking about this, that this has happened. This is a huge deal, uh, but nothing zero zilch. Um, and there has been no other communications from Amazon. They didn't announce it was going to happen. They tried to make a big deal about it happening on Amazon music, maybe just because they want to get as many people on board with Amazon music as they can, but no real announcement, um, around, you know, around it showing up on, on audible, which, like I said, I think that is the much, much bigger deal, uh, you know, I, I get why it being on Amazon music could be considered important, but I think it being on audible, I mean, because there's so many people who, you know, they're already listening for this kind of content with the audiobooks that they do or what even Amazon would classify as podcasts uh, with some of their shorter books and everything. Um, but that, you know, I mean, this is news. Like it's worthwhile for me to talk about. It's not me to just, you know, for here for me to tout that, that those oh, sovereign tech's available on another platform. I don't think that surprises anybody. Um, but regardless it's there. And, and it works, in my opinion works fairly well. Uh, I mean, there's not like some features aren't there that you might expect in a modern podcast client, for example, you know, skipping silence, which I actually don't like that feature. Like for me, I can say as a, as a host, as a professional podcast, a lot of times I will do the pauses for effect. So in my opinion, to get rid of the pauses to skip the pauses. Yeah, I get it. It saves time, but it might in many ways ruin the content. Uh, or at least not let the content, you know, stand on, on what it's trying to stand on. So that feature is not there, but basically any, you know, speeding up to however many X speed you want to listen at, uh, you know, all those features, uh, which are the bulk of podcast features as much as they are for audiobooks, uh, are all there on audible. Um, and again, I do like that you can rate individual episodes. Um, that could be a very helpful metric for me. Uh, I do like that you can, you know, review, uh, I mean, cause here's the thing, you know, we're not exactly, you know, the pro use of, of iTunes uh, because it's historic. I mean, Apple podcasts, you know, I have talked about that ever since it split off, that that's kind of a different story, but iTunes is such a mess. I never told anybody, Oh, leave a review on iTunes. Fuck. No. <laughs> you know? Why would I tell you to use iTunes? You know, I mean, such, can you imagine that people recommending that you use horrible, horrible software just Just so that, I don't know, they can get some kind of, you know, ego boost and stupid uptick on their podcast, Uh, especially for tech shows. Mind boggling to me. And you haven't needed iTunes to operate an iPhone for years now. Uh, There's just, there's no argument for that. Now, again, it's Apple podcasts now. And of course the verbiage within the podcast community, as I'm sure many of you who listen to podcasts know, uh, you know, nobody really mentions iTunes anymore. Now it's just subscribe on Apple podcasts, blah, 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 blah. So anyway, point being podcasts are now available on audible. It may not be all you cannot insert, uh, you know, your like feeds that you want to add in. You can't do that. Uh, something else, you know, I always forget this, but Plex, um, which I use heavily. Plex will allow you, uh, w- w- does do podcasts. Now I've known that they've done this for a long time, but I kind of forgot about it partly because, um, the, it didn't really feel feature complete, but also there was the issue that, uh, I don't think you could add in like, uh, you know, RSS feeds. You, you couldn't, you couldn't put in the XML and whatever in, into it. Um, independently, but now you can. So, I mean, that's an option to look at as well is Plex, but Plex is something where they actually, I feel like they need to do the opposite uh, or they need to fill in the inverse, which is okay. They have podcasts, but now they need to make audiobooks viable. And then frankly, at that stage, I, I mean, you know, cause you can use open audible to, uh, to rip, you know, all of your, you know, even if you buy them on audible, but you can instantly rip them into MP3s. And then if you could pop all that onto a Plex server and have your audiobooks, you know, in a really, really, you know, slick package, uh, and UI, which Plex has, um, I mean, Plex could get a lot more interesting. It's already very interesting, but it could get a lot more interesting at that stage. So it kind of needs to do the opposite of what audible just did. Maybe that's, maybe that's coming down the line. But regardless, we'll just we'll we'll end it off with this. Uh, like I said, unfortunately, it's not on e-readers because that's been the dream for me. Like you know, if podcasts could be on e-readers, I mean, I I'd barely touch my smartphone at that stage. <laughs> like there there just really be no reason. Um, but regardless, Sovereign Tech, you know, Audible has every reason to not allow a show like Sovereign Tech on there. Um, because this is a very rebellious, uh, anti-status quo, uh, uh, show, but we're there and thank you. So go ahead and subscribe folks, you know, via audible. And if you want, please leave a review. I would be honored. I'd love to read your reviews. I'd love to, you know, read what you think of the show, what you think of specific episodes and so on. I mean, I, I just, I, I think that's really, I would love to hear it. So go for it. Anyway, let's get into some other subjects. Now, this is something that I didn't think I would care to talk about. I mean, I, the idea we're going to talk about Apple, the idea that Apple would be dumping Intel processors. I don't think that surprises anybody when you hear it, you know, it's like, well, okay, fine. You know, and granted they have, you know, give the devil their due. Okay. (laughs) Uh, their processors that they, you know, that they've been developing for um, I mean, and they're all ARM processors. Even the M ones that we're about to talk about are, you know, technically ARM processors. Uh, the processors they've been developing for iOS devices uh, have been top notch. You know, I'm I'm not going to argue otherwise. They they really really are top notch. And of course, we know just how much Apple likes to keep as much in house as they can. Uh, it gives them tighter control. And, you know, ultimately for them, I mean, that's kind of their winning strategy. Uh, They are a company that very much does it differently. You know, I don't want to say that they fall under their moniker of think different anymore, but they do things differently. I mean, and look, when I was, I used to be an Apple fanboy. Okay. I was a hardcore Mac user, Mac and iPod. This is before the iPhone was a gleam in anybody's eye. I was a hardcore Mac fanboy. I mean, Apple fanboy. And you know, my iMac, I love that thing. I will still talk very kindly about that computer. Uh, The G4 cube, I have said over and over again that the G4 cube is the greatest, if not one of the greatest computers ever built. Okay. At least in the consumer space, obviously we're not talking about craze here. Just brilliant design. And what I loved about Apple was that there was that really tight, hardware software integration i love the powerpc platform i mean i used you know the powerpc architecture in my computers for as long as possible because i mean when fedora became well fedora was so good at and i know uh, linus torvalds the same deal he used fedora so much because it had such great support for the powerpc architecture i mean i i really cut my teeth on fedora and part of that was because you know that's what i had laying around or you know was uh, power PC based computers. So, you know, Apple constantly pushing the limits of what a processor could do was always very exciting for me, you know, even as, as a teenager and yes, <laughs> okay. I was one of those teenagers who was really into the specs, who was really, you know, into, uh, the tech. I mean, that, that's, that's how I'm doing a tech show now. You understand? All right. Cause this, this passion started, well, really much younger than than even a teenager, but, regardless that's what i loved about apple and i was not i mean i don't think anybody's really an intel fanboy but i always felt like since the 90s that intel was holding the entire industry back i mean it, it really was uh like i was a big fan of the uh, you know at the time in the 90s you had you you would end up with basically three primary consumer level, uh, processor manufacturers. You had AMD, you had Intel, and then you had the real underdog called Cyrix Cyrix was awesome. Awesome. You'd go to their website. And this is when not many people had websites, but you would go to their website and they like it, it, the top of the site was a tombstone with Intel on it. You know, it, it basically saying they were want, they wanted to bury Intel at their own game. And I I loved using uh, Cyrix chips. I mean, just fucking great. But you know, Cyrix ended up going under. Uh, I mean, there, there's whole stories around that. Regardless, Apple was really the only company that could compete in, with any kind of market share against Intel and try to push the the. Not that you need competition to move an industry forward, but to really try and push the industry forward under those auspices. Okay uh AMD just wasn't doing it. <laughs> it wasn't there. They would. And I was very supportive of that. I be I absolutely became an AMD fanboy when the Athlon chips started dropping. When they started putting out, you know, uh, you know, the 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 64-bit, you know, Athlon chips, I I was I was right there for those processors, baby. I was all about it. Um and that really, I mean, for a while Intel was not on top of the world. And that was entirely because Uh, basically AMD did what Apple did previously, where they were trying to leap entire generations in processing power and taking everything to the next level. And so, you know, I mean, I, I'll give AMD all the credit in the world for that. And I think in many ways they're trying to do the same thing with Ryzen. It's just, it's, it's not the same quantum leap. Uh, and you know, as far as reasonings behind all of this, uh, that's, I'm also, I'm sure a very long story with a lot of speculation, um, that, that we could get into around it, but we're not going to discuss that here. Bottom line being is that what I loved about Apple, I mean, yeah, I liked Mac OS as well, but what I loved about Apple was that, well, they did it their own way for one, but then also there was that again, that really right down to the processor, that really tight integration between software and hardware. Something I love about Nintendo as well, but regardless when, Real, admittedly when Apple started getting away from the power PC architecture, you know, after the G four and G, you know, I lost interest. You know, it felt, it felt like a bit of a betrayal to go to Intel at the time because, and, and also, you know, there, there were, there were major, and it seems like Apple is addressing this as far as the M one goes, there were major compatibility concerns with software that you as a Mac user may have been using at that stage for well over a decade um that you were basically told well they either have to come out with a you know new version of it that falls under the universal category where it works on both power pc and intel um or you know you're you're just you're fucked going forward and so it re- again it really felt like a betrayal uh to me and in fact one of the reasons that I ended up going to uh, windows machines after that, like after my G four cube basically bit the dust was because that was the only platform where I could still use Apple Works with any real efficacy. Okay. And where I wasn't pulling a bunch of tricks to do it because Apple Works was also released for, for windows. Um, and I, and I loved Apple Works back in the day. So anyway, uh, all of this is to say that, you know, this is what I love when when Apple does this. Now, I am not going to claim. So, Apple held an event on November tenth, and it was a Mac event. A, I'm going to give Apple credit. Okay. See, this is the thing. People think that you know, oh, I just I hate Apple or I hate Google or I hate this. No, 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 no. <laughs> what I love is you know, uh, uh, consumer facing and consumer empowering technology, and whoever brings that out. I will give credit to, and I will give praise. Okay. I may make broad statements like, Oh, fuck Google, or I hate Apple or blah, blah, blah. But understand there was a time where, no, I did not hate Apple. There was a time where, no, I did not hate Google, but they went down a road that I can't follow to quote Padme Amidala. And yes, that was a great scene. Thank you. Moving on. So Apple held this event and I want to give them credit for, because it really felt like, and, and I empathized with a lot of my, you know, a lot of friends and a lot of coworkers who were, you know, really diehard to this day, diehard Mac users. And they felt like the quality of the Macs that they were dealing with were, were I mean, it was just horrible. Uh, you know, the keyboards were bad or whatever was going on with them. The software felt like it was, you know, secondhand, like it, they weren't being considered first. Um, you know, th- they felt like, uh, you know, forgotten citizens as it were of the nation of Apple. And I could see where they were coming from. Like everything they had to say made a whole lot of sense. Uh, and so for Apple to have an entire event around the Mac and not so much about iOS devices, um, I'm going to give them credit for that because there is an install base that does a lot of great work and they will only do it on Mac. Um, there was a while in the past few years where it seemed like a lot of Mac users were switching over to windows 10. I'm sure a lot of them are switching back now because of the fucking fiasco and mess that windows 10 has become as far as updates and other security issues. And so for Apple to have an entire Mac event again, great. I mean, did it feel magical? Did I watch it? I watched it. Did I feel magical? No, not really, but it was the most interesting event They have had, in my opinion, in years, maybe the most interesting event they've had since Steve Jobs had gone. And this certainly felt like a very Steve Jobs product, even though ironically, Steve Jobs is the one who, you know, who ended up uh, saying, yeah, we're going to put Intel's into Macs. Regardless, Apple announced the M1 and they announced new MacBook Pros, new MacBook Airs, and a new Mac mini, which is also a computer that I, I think I absolutely love because I always felt like it was kind of the successor to the G4 cube. Um, and you know, it smacks of kind of that, that Commodore 64, uh, uh, abstract mentality, uh, similar to what we were talking about earlier with that $70 Raspberry Pi, uh, you know, the Pi 400. I love those kinds of computers, you know, where it's, yeah, bring, all right, bring in your keyboard, you know, maybe your own keyboard or, you know, bring in your own monitor, bring in your mouse, blah, 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 you know, where it's, yeah, it's kind of all in one, but then also it's sort of not right. And you get to you get to tailor where you want, Uh, even though you used to have to open up the original Mac minis with a putty knife, but, and that was kind of unheard of for computers at the time. Regardless, uh, you know, it was nice to see the Mac mini get a little bit of love that I I was pleased by that. Um, but all of them are getting this, the, you know, this new M one processor and by the numbers, by the cores and all that, I mean, it does look like a very, very interesting piece of Silicon. I mean, we're talking about, so they're eight core. Um, but so it's an eight core CPU. And then I guess there's four high performance cores and then four high efficiency cores, what all that looks like uh, it'll be interesting to look at those specs and and see a little bit more as they reveal more but then also they are going to have integrated GPUs and that GPU is going to be an 8-core GPU now these are again effectively just super high-powered high-end arm processors right uh i don't say that is a bad thing okay now clearly this is probably a step in the direction of doing the what was in my opinion, supposed to be a game changing thing uh, a few years ago with windows, which was the, the always connected PC. I am sure this is part of Apple wanting to get involved with that. And that's part of the reason that they're, you know, they went with arm processors, but then I'm sure there's also the security around the matter, right. And getting away from all of the rampant problems that Intel has run into. And for whatever reason, not doing a deal with AMD, even though, you know, Apple has, uh, you know, put in, um, AMD GPUs, uh, you know, in the past, but you're effectively dealing with 16 cores here, which sounds pretty impressive, but what's really impressive is the supposed battery life that these things can get. Uh, I think, was it the, the air that was supposed to get like 18 to 20 hours battery life, supposedly, supposedly, uh, and some of the numbers that they're talking about, you know, whatever, 15 times faster than this or that. I mean, you know, we could rattle off all those numbers in the real world, what that actually looks like, who knows that's nice that they want to claim all that. Are we going to see that 18 hour, you know, battery life? Um, yeah, I think it was like 15 hours, web browsing, 18 hours, video playback. Uh, and that was for the air, the MacBook pro maybe a bit of a different situation. Um, you know, what's that going to look like in the real world? Well, even if it's half that, that's still great. You know, I mean, that really, that like, that's still a very impressive and worthwhile number, but that battery life number is amazing. Uh, The other part that's impressive is that apparently there is no issue with any software for Mac designed for Intel processors working perfectly well with the M1. Um, I think Rosetta 2 is there, it's not necessarily a emulation layer, but maybe for lack of a better term, we'll call it that. Uh and supposedly, you know, some stuff that it was even, you know, really purposely programmed. I mean, and of course, all of all of it is ultimately, but purposely programmed for running on an Intel processor can actually run faster. With you know, w- with Rosetta 2 on I, I mean, not that this is unheard of, right? Because that used to be a thing with OpenBSD or with BSD in general, is that BSD used to, I mean, now it's kind of baked in, but it used to have an emulation layer for Linux. And it could actually run some Linux software faster than Linux itself could, even though the software, you know, wasn't designed for BSD, but that's how great the emulation layer was. So kind of a similar situation here. So, I mean, and and I think they probably knew that that was pretty essential because I, I do, th- I was one of them. A lot of people left Apple behind when they went to Intel chips. Um, now I think you could almost see the, you know, the opposite thing happen here. I mean, this is, this is a it, this is a big deal. Um, I mean, I don't want to say that this is Apple being innovative. They haven't been innovative in, you know, forever. Um, but it is getting back to, in my opinion, it's getting back to what made Apple great, you know, 30 years ago. It's getting back to the, you know, really tailored Apple experience that really, I think went away you know, but now there's the option and look, Microsoft's in trouble. I mean, because (laughs) again, they are still relying heavily and to some degree, even, and this is interesting, Chromebooks really fall prey to this too, because Intel just, they cannot deliver the speed and have the security uh, demands met at the same time that a lot of platforms are looking for. And so I'll admit this, this is putting Apple in, in a tremendous position um, to really to dominate in desktop, which I didn't think they would ever do again. Uh, not that they ever necessarily did, but I didn't think that they'd even, you know, that you'd be able to make the great argument for having them be your main desktop again. Um, I, I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of blown away by this. Like I, I watched it, I listened to it. I, and, and as long as they can deliver, on most of what they said, okay, and that there aren't issues with, you know, software compatibility and so on, as long as they can deliver on a lot of that. Uh, Apple's got a winner here. I mean, I'm intrigued. I, I'm, I'm, you know, looking at this MacBook Air saying, oh, well, I'd like to see how that works. You know, <laughs> like I, I could see, and, you know, that does raise, of course, an issue. Um, like how is this going to work with boot camp? Um, you know, will Windows 10 work well now? Uh, will Linux work well still on a Mac going forward? Uh, I don't think that Apple's going to care too much if the answer is no uh, to those. The one thing that I thought was a little disappointing and that I really wonder about, though, is that for some reason they're still using what Thunderbolt 3 and 4 or whatever. But they said that eGPUs, which as in external GPU cards that you can connect via Thunderbolt, those won't work with the M1 processors. I I find that to be incredibly strange. Uh, and we don't know if Apple's actually going to play ball with dedicated GPUs, like say in the MacBook Pros in the future. The MacBook, the first M1 MacBook Pros have uh do not have dedicated GPUs in them. So I, I do I am I have questions about this. And again, I really I, I don't know how. A part of me wonders if Apple was some because it doesn't make any like what is there, is there some kind of massive technical issue why eGPUs can't work with the M one something doesn't add up there and I would not be surprised as complimentary as I as I have been about this I would not be surprised if Apple didn't like that people were maybe saving some money and buying a lower end Mac and then putting their money into an eGPU that wasn't, you know, that Apple wasn't getting a cut of, say from NVIDIA or whatever, or maybe this is Apple ultimately wanting to, uh, you know, take a bite out of, uh, you know, what NVIDIA has going on. And yeah, I could believe that. So, but if so, if that's just a business decision and it's not a technical one, I think that's shitty just straight up. I mean, I, I just, I, I think, why limit people's options. See not you're you're two steps forward and like one step back when when you're when you're playing ball that way. And I hope that's not what's going on, but it could be. So anyway, the M1 very very interesting. I think that this is I mean this makes this as long as it can deliver, this really does make Apple or Macs, I should say, viable platforms again in my opinion. It makes them interesting again. Uh, and also allows them, you know, because one of the reasons that I was arguing for why you want to get a Raspberry Pi 4 is because you can tie in a fairly secure, uh, very, I should say, not fairly, a secure platform, you know, a secure hardware with Ubuntu now, which is very secure software, and, you know, and you could tie those two together. Now with an M1, I think you have the real possibility of having you know, Apple security software wise, and then having, you know, that, uh, that highly vaunted and touted, uh, you know, Apple, uh, security as far as hardware goes once again, but they could only do that by leaving Intel behind. And, you know, if Intel goes out of business sooner or later, Hey, no skin off my back. I'm not worried about it at all. Let it happen. So <laughs> it's, it's, like I said earlier, I've been waiting since the nineties for them to tank. And so let it happen. Maybe this is a case of the enemy and my enemy is my friend, but <laughs> anyway, Bravo Apple. I mean, for me to, to be interested in anything you're doing, uh, that, that takes a masterstroke and you pulled it off. So anyway, we'll be right back with some more sovereign tech. Woo. Hey, is Sovereign Tech not enough for you? Well, let me tell you about something you'll never get enough of. No, no, I mean it. We're talking about a radio show and podcast that goes all night long, seven nights a week, three hours a night, 365 days a year, and has been going since the early aughts, baby. I am talking about none other than Free Talk Live. It's the show you control. That's right. It's an open phones call-in show that is ready for you. And if you're worried that your voice isn't going to get heard, don't be. We are talking about the only libertarian radio show stateside. And not only that, it's also the number 26 talk show in the United States. Start listening now and go ahead and hit that massive back catalog at freetalklive.com. The golden stallion guarantees a good time. And you might even find some episodes with me on them when you do. That's freetalklive.com. And we thank them for sponsoring Sovereign Tech. Let's get back to the show.
0: The main story.
1: It is time for the main story. And actually, if we do this right, I'm going to give you two main stories, um, because there's two subjects that I have promised that I wanted to get into that play off of episode 394 of Sovereign Tech. Uh, that I think we need to get into, but then there's also a major subject. Uh, something that we've only really been able to theorize and now it's happened. And I think we need to discuss it when we get into hack sex. So that's a separate thing. And then we've got a gaming grid to talk about. We've got, cause we've got to get into the gaming grid because I have the hottest new console on the planet. I have it. And We got to talk about it. I I keep saying that. I got to stop. Fuck. I hate it when I say that. Okay. We're going to talk about it. We're going to talk about the hottest console on the planet today. I mean, this is brand new stuff. I, I, well, I'll save it for the review, but we're going to break into it. Um, And then hopefully we can get into a a climax and we can talk about some, uh, well, maybe not the happiest of matters, but some other things, certainly some fun things to walk away with but the first thing I want to talk about here is I had said when we were discussing 5g in a recent episode, I said, we need, we have another technology just like I feel we very much put 5g in the coffin. Uh, In fact, we didn't just put 5g in the coffin. This is this little follow-up story. Let me, let me grab this. Well, I'll put the links in the show notes uh, for this, but basically here's the headline from October 26th, 28th to 2020. Verizon admits 5g is more about autonomous vehicles and smart cities than speed X. Uh, well anyway, that, that, but that's, that's the gist. And it's based off of uh, a newsletter that Verizon sent out where they more or less admitted this, that 5g is not about what the consumer can get out of it. It's about interconnecting traffic lights and, you know, whatever autonomous vehicles and all this other horseshit Bottom line being is that it's not about the speed. And that's what we talked about when we were last talking about 5g is that there is no appreciable difference with 5g for the consumer. Now you could say that, well, the smart city at the end of the day is the appreciable difference that that ultimately helps uh, the consumer. Mm, I don't know. And in fact, we'll save that conversation for our second main story when we get to it. But I just wanted to bring up that, I am now, I'm no longer the only person out there who's saying 5g is ultimately worthless for the consumer. Now there might, again, there might be other purposes, but then you have to take a good long look at all of those interweaving purposes out there and ask yourself, does that empower the individual or does that empower something else like say authoritarianism? Well, I'll let you decide on that. Though so you know where I stand because for the man of tomorrow, the individual is the measure of all things. That's it. End of story. So let's get into, uh, 4k, which I wanted to bring this up because the two things that most of the consumer tech companies are levying on you right now fall under either 5g. That's what your smartphone needs to do. Or 4k. That's what your console needs to do. Or that's what even your phone needs to do. That's what everything needs to do. Now I've been hammering against 4k for some time on the show. I've never been positive about it. And well, this is, I want to make the overall case so that you understand 4k is something that is not about the consumer winning in the end. Okay. In fact, uh, I think it's very, I think you could say it's a bit of speculation. You could say it's theoretical, but I don't think so. The real reason behind 4k, actually, there are two reasons behind it, but we'll get into those at the very end here. So to understand 4k is a technology based around a resolution, which that has been the really ever since DVDs became a thing uh, TV resolution or, you know, re- screen resolution has become a major deal. Uh, yes, it mattered as far as gaming and with computers and a lot of that, you know, and refresh rate and uh, though, but originally those kinds of technologies were merely the purview of, you know, people who had this very elite desire and understanding of just trying to get the best picture and experience, um, that they can, you know, you know, Everybody remembers. If you grew up like me, you know, in the eighties and nineties, everybody remembers the people, you know, the audiophiles, the cinephiles, or the video files, whatever. The people who were so into that home theater experience—I mean, like that was their fucking life—and I—I mean that with no disrespect, by the way, none, none at all. But I think in many ways, what happened is because you know, Laserdisc never took off except for with the cinephiles. You know, when DVD hit, and Everybody got wanted on board with it. Of course, part of that had to do with the fact that everybody was buying the new game console, which also happened to be a DVD player, that being the PlayStation 2. Uh, I think people forget that little part of the equation was that it was kind of like an added value prop there. Um, When a lot of these companies, including the movie industry, not just consumer tech, but like the movie industry and everybody else. When they saw how much the everyday person was latching on to this, you know, new DVD technology, um, you know, that started a chain reaction where suddenly, you know, everybody was talking about resolution. How can we get uh you know a clearer picture? How can we sell more DVDs? How can we sell new versions of movies? How can we, you know, because the DVD you had Superbit, you had all this, you know, all this differing technology. And you know, suddenly 480p was a thing uh, that was possible you know, how do we, and then how do we make TVs to come into that now to say nothing of, you know, the idea of transmitting, uh, TV over the airwaves that that's another part of the piece of the puzzle, certainly, but we're really, we're here to talk about 4k, but you had this storm that started with DVDs as to where really, you know, the television Didn't see, I mean, yes, like there was HD, you know, there were new developments in in television that had existed for some time that had been going on for decades. I mean, basically, you know, France had HD in the fifties, you know, it's not like it was necessarily a new thing or there, there weren't new technologies being developed, but for the consumer really, you know, TV technology did not make any grand leaps for decades, for decades it's hard for me to imagine, especially like as Ellen and I have been rewatching on Blu-ray have been rewatching like, uh, well for Babylon five, it's on DVD only, unfortunately. Um, But even like we're rewatching Star Trek, the next generation now, and all all the stuff that I'm watching with Ellen, I think about it sometimes the fact that 90% of it, I watched on a 24 inch massive, Now, 24 inches is not massive, um, not for a TV anyway, <laughs> but this 24 inch massive, you know, wood grained, you know, television. I mean, it was a piece of furniture, this fucking thing that uh, was, a, it was a Zenith. Now, when I was watching the next generation on, and it was color, it was a color, you know, CRT, right? When I was watching it at the age of like eight or nine, that TV was already some odd 20 to 25 years old. I watched the very uh, minus, you know, DVD, future DVD releases or legend of the Rangers. I watched, you know, crusade, all that stuff, you know, all those end movies for Battle on five. I watched all of that on that very television on that, that, that shitty. I mean, by today's standards, that shitty 24 inch CRT, uh, uh, you know, monster, uh, uh, Zenith television. And I fell in love with all of these shows and movies and all this content, just fine. I never had a complaint in the world that, Oh man, I just wish those ships were a little sharper. Oh, I wish I could see the freckle on Patrick Stewart's face, whatever, you know, like, I mean, that, that never crossed my mind. And I was watching the most intellectual stuff on television. You know, it wasn't like I was some dum dum or something or the content was. And I say this to suggest that, you know, for many decades, other than a, a very niche group of people, no one really cared, <laughs> you know, about like 480p or whether it was, you know, interlaced or progressive scanned. you know, no, nobody cared about any of that. It, it, they just, they just didn't. When DVD hit, here's the thing. Do you want to know what you, you got to understand this. What made DVD a a mainstream success as it were? it's because you didn't have to rewind and fast forward anymore. It's because the VCR, you didn't have to, you know, clean the heads. The VCR uh, wasn't eating the tape after you've watched it a hundred times, you know, like DVD took over. I mean, cause DVD, you know, DVD players even had a disadvantage in that they couldn't record like VHS could right? Like a VCR could record what was on TV. You couldn't do that with DVD, but DVD still ended up dominating in very short order. That was not the companies involved with DVD, uh, causing that that was absolute consumer desire and demand. Okay. Uh, the, the companies, you know, JVC and the rest of them, I mean, they were all internally arguing about what format of DVD they should go with. You know, they, they weren't, (laughs) they weren't even thinking, okay, how do we really get market saturation? That just happened by the fact that the technology was a quantum leap in what the consumer was able to do with what they wanted to consume. The feature set was through the roof, having all the specials and all this other stuff that excited people. And the measure of a worthwhile technology, in my opinion, and I don't think it's just opinion is, does it make, does it make your life easier? And does it really like, is it a quantum shift quantum leap in how you experience, you know, whatever you're trying to experience in this case, movies or TV shows or whatever with 4k. And now does 4k fit that metric? No, 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 it doesn't. Does Blu-ray fit that metric? Actually, not really. Like Blu-ray really doesn't do that much more than DVD. The advantage the Blu-ray has is, is that yes, 1080p is the upper limit of crisp, crispness of picture. And also with Blu-ray, it is, a, I mean, DVDs are, if you, I mean, and, and this varies upon how you treat your discs. Blu-rays are significantly tougher than DVDs. Also Blu-rays allow for significantly, uh, larger, a larger amount of storage, which I would argue is their greatest benefit. I mean, let's be clear here. 4k really are just larger Blu-rays. It's not, it's not even a different technology. It's a different resolution, but it's not even a different technology at the end of the day. It's just Blu-rays with more layers. That's all it is. It's, it's still technically Blu-ray technology. So it's very easy to point at, where, you know, like 1080p resolution, uh, that there are benefits to that. And particularly with physical discs where a Blu-ray does have, you know, some, some genuine appreciable advantages over what a DVD can do. Now, when you bring in M disc, the durability thing doesn't even become, you know, part of the equation, but certainly having more storage and let's be clear here. Blu-ray is a great, if not the greatest storage, especially with M disc the greatest storage medium we have and the biggest companies in the world use it for just such, uh, including Facebook. They don't leave stuff on servers. They put it all on a Blu-ray disc. I mean, on a long enough timeline. So let's talk a little bit about 4k, all right, Because again, if you somehow think that you need this in your life, you, as I said, in previous episodes or in a previous episode, you are buying into 100% pure marketing hype it is nothing more than marketing so 4k's been with us for uh a little over 5 years or so it is based upon as far as with discs goes it is based upon again like i said blu-ray blu-ray xl uh or what do they call it bdxl i think is the is the the actual acronym for it and there are varying resolutions that it runs at but the basic number is you know that matters like when it's 480p that's so, like 1080p, okay, is actually 1920 by 1080. The 1080 is the amount of lines. There's a thousand, you know, what is it like a thousand eighty lines going up the, uh, you know, the side of the screen, okay. And so that that last number in any resolution, just like if you have a computer, if you have an older one, it's 1366 by 768 or 640 by 480, right? That's where the 480p comes from or 480i. So the actual number that matters with 4k is not the first number, which varies, you know, it could be 3840 could be somewhere around there. It's the second number. so it's 3840 by 2160. It's that 2160. Now, why don't they, why do they call it 4k instead of what has traditionally been where you use the second number in the resolution? Why aren't they calling it 2160 P when that's really all that it is? Well, it doesn't sound as impressive. <laughs> it's part 1 in the marketing hype. Okay. Um I mean 1080p is a genuine impressive leap from 480p from 720p which is technically HD. Uh you know you don't you don't need to do any numbers trickery. It's just what the numbers are and it shows. So they're trying to fool you into thinking that 4K is basically somehow four times better than your average Blu-ray or better than 1080p. when it's not, (laughs) okay. It's, it's not at all. And yes, I know 8K is already a thing. Everything I am saying for 4K applies to 8K. So let's talk about this a little bit. Um, with 4K, this is something that really started its life with PCs. Um, and this is, I guess if we're going to say anything nice, this is the one area where, okay, maybe 4K. And and we're not even getting into refresh rates because that's pretty key to a lot of this, too. Uh, you know, 120 hertz, 60 hertz. Anyway, we might get into a little bit of that. But uh, this is the one area where there might be some advantage. But do you know where the advantage is? The advantage is in reading text. So 4K kind of like how 5g sure 5g works great for smart devices and a bunch of other stuff, but does it actually mean anything to the consumer? No. This sure means something to the consumer, but the only real appreciable advantage that 4k gives you as a resolution, as a technology is in reading text better. How many people, are going to buy entirely new monitors and TVs and whatever else new devices that can actually push 4K, which, by the way, the Raspberry Pi can, uh, Raspberry Pi Four anyway can. How many people are going to get on board with that just so that they can read text better? I'm sure there, there's there's a small group out there that would be into that, and I think it's a fine and dandy thing, but that's it. <laughs> it's not not even gaming the only place where, you know, raw power, raw dog, as it were, that 4k gives you an appreciable difference and advantage over 1080p or over anything else is in the processing and the reading of text. That's it. End of story. There's no, there's nowhere else where it is going to give you because here's so, so here's kind of the, 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 the the secret with, uh, with 4k. There's actually two secrets. Okay. Just like there's two reasons why I think 4k is out there. There's two secrets here. One is that if you are, so again, for a lot of people with 4k, where, where are you applying that for most it's their new television in their living room and they sit on their couch, which is hopefully six feet away. Um, you know, because you don't want to be too close to the TV screen, right? We've known this since we were kids. Uh, So healthy eyes. Um, But anyway, you know, you're probably about six feet away from that screen. And if you're not six feet away, I mean, when you're dealing with, so uh, yeah, (laughs) this is, this is a complex subject, but we're going to, we're going to dig into it. Okay. If you're, here's the thing is that if, all right, if six feet away, you want your, your, your sofa to be six feet away, you cannot, tell you genuinely cannot tell the difference between 1080p and 4k. There is no difference in what you're seeing. Now you might say, Oh, but it looks so much sharper. Everything looks a lot, a lot more real. That's motion blur. That's what's called the soap opera effect. That's a separate subject. We're going to get into that in a second. That's totally different. That also is a lie. Okay. Uh, And in fact, it's not just a lie. Even Hollywood, want you to turn that off when you're watching a movie on your 4k screen, thus making it even more pointless, but we'll save that. So there's no difference in, in, in like what the, like the pixel count with the pixels that you can see if you are sitting on your sofa. Okay. If you're not sitting in, here's what you're going to say to me. Well, but stallion, I sit, I lay down right in front of my fucking television. I don't sit six feet away. Okay. But then if you are on binge sessions with watching something, um, there is a, it it actually, like it even has a name. There is an effect that occurs where you are constantly bobbing your head because you're watching on 4k on some giant screen where 4k can be an advantage, right? The bigger the screen gets, okay. Having a higher resolution can, you know, allow for that picture to scale better without it, you know, look, and ended up looking funny, or you seeing a ton of pixels, or whatever else. There's an advantage there, but it's an advantage that cancels itself out. You understand? Because if you you can't sit there for hours and watch everything that's going on screen on an 80 inch screen where 4K could possibly matter, and I mean it's not an exaggeration. I mean an 80 inch screen, okay? And that creates an entire effect where you actually, I mean, it's almost a dysphoria that you get because you you're not seeing everything that's basically happening in front of you. Okay. And that's because you're sitting so close to it to where that, that, where that, you know, higher resolution would actually matter again, go back six feet. There's no difference between 4k and 1080p. There's none six feet and beyond. There's none. It doesn't matter. So it's a bullshit technology because you can't actually tell the difference. All right. So there's that now to add to the bullshit. Okay. I just mentioned uh, scaling and upscaling a lot of, especially with discs, but also certainly a lot of, even if you can get a network of some kind, a channel of some kind, or, you know, streaming of some kind where they are supposedly schlepping you 4k content, most of that 4k content, either streaming network and most cable networks don't even allow for it, streaming network or, um, you know, or an actual 4k disc a lot of those it's all upscaled. Okay. And in fact, you can, you can go to like, what is it? Blu-ray.com. That's a very famous site where you can find out about all the new releases and you get all these, you know, like I mentioned earlier, the cinephiles, you know, and the audiophiles who will do um, that's pH, uh, <laughs> you know, they're fans of these things where they will do these big reviews of, Oh, was the sound washed out. How was the Dolby Atmos transition, you know, and all this crap, they do this whole, you know, digging deep. You can look up every disc, And even something you think like a modern film that was highly touted, that had a bit, you know, that was a big budget affair, say like Wonder Woman, actually a movie I really love. I I think is a great film Um, that on the 4k disc is not native 4k. It's upscaled to 2160p. So you're even getting lied there. You're not getting native 4k content. You're just getting upscaled content, which is ultimately a lie. And that's ultimately marketing. As to where you've had native 1080p forever. And in fact, I don't think there was ever I could be wrong about this, but I don't think anybody was bothering uh, you know, upscaling older just doing like upscaling of, of I mean they were doing full remasters with Blu ray for, for 1080p. Uh I don't think anybody was really bothering doing upscale at, at, at that point. You know, I, I don't think that would have sold, and I think people would have, I mean, the the cinephiles would have flipped out. You know, if, if they knew you were doing that then I don't know why they're not flipping out now, but they're not, but ultimately you're not getting an actual remaster. Say like in the case of wonder woman, you're just getting an upscaled disc. Now your player, your actual Blu-ray player can handle or your 4k player or whatever can actually handle a lot of that upscaling process on its own. So again, they're, they're bullshitting you. But for example, my Blu-ray player will do a kind of a native upscaling of a DVD to turn it to try and turn it into 1080p. The results are certainly mixed. You know the difference. You know when you're watching a DVD compared to a Blu-ray. There's no question about that. Okay. Um, but point being is that they're selling you a disc that really your player could do the whole job for in the first place. Okay. So again, it's bullshit. It's marketing. And this, I mean, this is something that's been a you know kind of. A, a common complaint against 4k is that there's just not a lot of 4k content out there. Um, and no, there isn't, but even half, if not more of what is out there isn't really 4k content. It's just upscaled. It's not even remastered. It's just upscaled. And those are different things. Those are two very different things. So again, you have, you know, upscaled content. That's a lie. And then if you, you know, again, when you're sitting back far enough, to keep from getting what we were talking about, which is viewing fatigue. Okay. Where you can't see all the edges of your screen just by moving your eyes. That's called viewing fatigue. That's why you, that's partly why you sit so far back um, because it'll strain your eyes and your neck uh, when you start moving your head. So really, you know, when you're looking at a TV screen, you kind of want your head to be static. Otherwise, you know, you're going to run into issues that again, that's called viewing fatigue when you can't see the edges of the screen. That's why you don't sit. That's partly why you don't sit so close. There's other reasons, but regardless. So then, so, all right. So we have the upscaling issue. We have the viewing fatigue issue and to resolve the viewing fatigue issue, you you're supposed to be back at least six feet with your sofa. And when you get that far back again, there's no fucking difference in the pixels that you see. There's none between 1080p and 4k. So we've talked about all that, all that is a bullshit technology. But like I said earlier, I know what you're going to tell me. You're going to say, no, I've seen this or I've seen it in the store. And that picture is gorgeous. It looks so real. It looks like something I'm seeing on YouTube. Aha. So here's (laughs) the soap opera effect is a very real thing. Okay. And they call it the soap opera effect because it looks like you're watching um, a soap opera right. And you always kind of knew, even when I was growing up, I always kind of knew when a show was a soap opera because it just kind of had this weird look to it where the camera maybe didn't look as professional. Okay. It didn't seem to be, you know, and, and at the time as a little kid, I I didn't know anything about, you know, frames per second or or any of that kind of stuff, but partly that's what was going on. I mean, you know, again, it's daily shoots. I mean, you're just, you're hammering away on this equipment. Um, yeah. I mean, they would use lower quality equipment than what you generally get. If you're watching an episode of the A-Team or if you're watching hell, even 2001, a space odyssey. So earlier, I, in fact, just a minute ago, I think I called it motion blur. What I meant to say was motion smoothing, which is to resolve motion blur. Okay. Motion blur is effectively the blur that occurs when something is moving on the screen. It There is a sharpness that disappears just from the motion. Okay. This has been true forever. Here's the thing is that with LCD, which most TVs are now are some form of LCD, uh, you know, or even OLED or whatever that motion, that motion blur, especially as you keep, you know, raising the resolution becomes more and more pronounced with more pixels. And so what ends up getting done is, is this motion smoothing, this motion smoothing is only possible on modern TVs. Now it's possible because believe it or not, we've been talking processors a lot in this show, in this episode, there are fairly powerful processors inside of these televisions it has nothing to do with, you know, whether or not it's a smart TV with a Roku built in or, or Google TV or whatever. Okay. But there's a processor in there that is trying to guess what the motion is doing And basically it's trying to fill in the lines. Okay. To, to make it look like a crisp picture, even when motion is occurring on the LCD. This is a fake. And I mean, it's not unheard of. I mean, just like progressive scan itself is a fake over trying to cover up interlacing lines. It's the difference between, you know, like, you know, 1080i and 1080p interlaced progressive. But here's the thing is that, You know, when you're doing that, like say you're watching, I don't know, sports or something, when it's content or even video games, when it's content that's going at 30 frames per second, okay, right? Like, so those frames, like they're they're moving in a motion of 30 frames per second or even 60 frames per second, the motion blurring isn't so bad. The problem is with movies, like with major Hollywood films, those have been forever and to this day filmed at 24 frames per second, 24 FPS. At 24 FPS, that filling in that motion smoothing that occurs is causing the, you know, the really like grandiose picture that the cinematographer for a movie worked so hard on, you know, so that you know that you're looking at, because I mean, you know, you, you've seen this where the picture that comes from a movie, like you can just tell the cameras are on a whole other level. But then when you watch those same movies on a 4k screen, it looks like it might as well be something that came off of YouTube. This is because the motion smoothing, uh, and this isn't going to get any better folks. Okay. <laughs> I mean, they're, they're not going to figure this out. Uh, the motion smoothing that occurs is filling in too much in the 24 frames per second, because there's so many more frames than it's used than it's generally programmed and designed to handle. There's so many more frames that it's trying to fill in. It just, it, it, it fails at smoothing the motion. And so you end up with this kind of the soap opera effect that occurs. And it's, you know, if I were a movie maker, which I wouldn't mind being one, I'm not, but if I were, uh, I would be really pissed off that a lot of hard work that went into my cinematography is basically all being thwarted by, uh, you know, by, by 4k TVs and by 4k, you know, either upscaled or whatever, but basically, you know, 4k fake content. It's just, it's not going to look how it was meant to look. So you have that issue as well, is that, that, that soap opera effect is actually a negative. Okay. It, I mean, yeah, it works great if you're watching sports and, you know, there is the argument that a lot of the people that are all excited about 4k and whatever else, really that's all they want to watch is the big game on the damn thing. And they don't really care about movies in that sense. I, I don't, I still everything else that I've already talked about, you know, there's no real advantage there. And I mean, then we get into a whole other issue and this is, this is in my opinion, kind of the, 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 the end game of it here. Okay. And that will lead into, um, are two points of why 4k is actually why, why it's a thing and why it's being sold to you. And again, it's not for your benefit. So there's the potential argument around watching, uh, you know, the big game as it were on, on a 4k TV. Part of that, of course, all comes from how the TV's processor is processing the signal not that it is like the raw resolution of what you're getting, but it's all a lot of trickery in the background. It's similar to if I were to have an analogy uh, or something analogous here, it's funny to say analog when I'm talking about digital, but (laughs) something analogous uh, would be, and and I've said this many times, um, like Bluetooth headphones, Bluetooth headphones can sound really good. Will they ever sound as good as hardwired speakers? Never. Never. Okay. Not when you get a good quality wired speaker, it's never going to sound that good. Why does Bluetooth sound good at all? It's actually a pretty, you know, shitty transmission speed for data. Why does it sound good? It's because there is, and I've said this many times is that Bluetooth tells a good lie. Okay. It, it has processing effects. All right. That get done to it that, uh, that make the sound sound like it has, or make the headphones sound like they have more bass than they actually are technically capable of with, you know, whatever the, uh, you know, well, there's no, woofer, well, like whatever the speaker that's in it would, would put out. Um, it's faking the quality of the sound, but it will never be as good as an actual wired speaker. Is it good enough for the consumer? Maybe. And so that's where you could say, okay, well, all of this is so, stallion, but you know, for me to see, I don't know, whatever football team, you know, to see the Florida Gators or whoever do their thing, which, Hey, go for it boys. Uh, you know, it's good enough for you. Okay. But then let's be clear about that, that you're just dealing with good enough, you know, (laughs) but I mean, or even, you know, when we get into streaming, here's the funny: you know, this is something that, that another thing, most people do not realize the amount the compression. Okay. Uh the compression of you know, basically the bitrate, the pixels of what's coming down, say from Netflix, that they will claim is 4K is worse than native in your house in your Blu-ray player 1080p. To say nothing of the sound. It sound's horrible. I mean, I learned that lesson with um Star Trek Discovery. You know, when you watched on CBS All Access, and then like I got the season one Blu-rays, which I don't have those anymore. You can imagine why. Uh the sound was astounding. I don't even have a good sound system. The sound was astounding on the Blu-rays. Like there's shit going on. I had no idea that was happening on the multiple times. I watched the episodes on CBS all access two, three times over. The Blu-rays blew me away, but I was being told that I was getting schlepped off, you know, some, some really, you know, HD content here. And it's so funny because now Netflix like keeps charging you more. Yeah. Okay. We need to add $4 to your, uh, you know, to your monthly subscription because you're getting 4k content, but the bit rate, because of the compression that you're getting, it's worse than 1080p that you could have right in your house. You see, do you see what I'm saying? It's all marketing horseshit. It's all a lie. And they're, they're, they're charging you for the privilege of this lie. Now, something I do want to address here, okay, is because you could, you know, you can very easily come at me and say, yeah, "Stallion," just like you often recommend. I torrent everything, you know. and no, I don't. I, I, I have, I have a massive Blu-ray collection, Blu-ray and DVD collection. Um, but I do, I do torrent stuff absolutely. Uh, you know, where it makes sense and when that's like the the way to get the best quality of things, and it really is. I mean, like, do you know the the best way to own Uh, Voltron legendary defender, one of the best shows in years that's just ever been made anywhere. Not even cartoon just shows, uh, the best way to get your hands on that. You can either buy it on DVD and you can't even get all the seasons, you know, uh, I'm not going to wait on, on Netflix. Okay. Or, you know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to rely upon Netflix to always have it available to me, even though they made it. Uh, you know, you can go ahead and you can, you know, torrent, uh, 1080p copies of all episodes from all seasons and that's how i like to have it okay uh and now there's an easy argument to have for why you'd want to do that why because you know what happens and i understand where a lot of these people are coming from but i want you to go on i don't know what 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 network is community the show community on now is that on peacock now or something i want you to watch every single episode of community ever made on there you can't why because there are episodes for reasons of sensitivity i'm not going to get into all that but for reasons of sensitivity have been taken down and are not allowed to be played. They're not there. So how do you do it? Well, you can buy the discs, you can have them all there and you can have them forever. And unless somebody's going to come into your house and take, you know, the state's going to come in and take them away. uh, You've got them for all time. Doesn't matter what uh, you know, is going on in the culture war. So I'm not going to rely on streaming services to have stuff that I'm really passionate about always available to me, not a chance, never going to happen. I'm not going to rely on them. Same is true for the Simpsons. They got rid of the, on Disney plus you can't, you can't watch the Michael Jackson episode on there. Fuck them. Now. So I I do have a large collection of movies and TV shows, cartoons, all kinds of shit. um, You know, that are digital files that I've on, on, on a hard drive. Key, key phrase there on a hard drive, one hard drive. If I, suddenly gave such a shit. (laughs) Okay. About 4k content. I would not have a hard drive. I would have a, you know, my, my desk here in the studio is uh, all told about 12 feet long or so to have everything that I just have now on one, eight terabyte hard drive, as far as shows, movies, and all that, I'd probably have to fucking cover this entire desk with hard drives. No way. You can keep your 4K. 1080p is good enough. I can get 1080p. You know, on a, a you know X265, right? We could use that as the compression or as the codec. <laughs> and I, I can get a movie gorgeous with pretty good sound in a gigabyte, a full movie inside of a gigabyte and you think I'm going to go 4k and it needs to be fucking 50 gig, even for the, you know, even for the, uh, the digital file off of the disc, you know, with no special features whatsoever, kiss my fucking ass. Not, no way. It's just, it's not practical at all. 4k content to own 4k content. I mean, yeah, you can buy the discs and and that's still practical. And I think buying physical is, for movies and TV shows, certainly video games, eh, eh. Uh, if we lived in a different world to be practical, but in the modern world, it's still practical to buy TV shows and movies on disc and all that. I'm very supportive uh, of doing so, um, you know, but there's no practical way for an individual to store 4k content outside of that. And folks, I mean, we've gotten used to, I mean, Apple's certainly been trying to level best forever to get you off of buying physical. They want, you know, a piece of the pie of everything that you buy online and everything. And I, and I think most people kind of have fallen for it. They've, you know, I mean, I talk to most people and the idea that I have Blu-rays or that I have physical discs of movies is alien to them. That wasn't true 20 years ago. Yeah. Everybody had DVD collections of some kind 20 years ago. Uh, or, you know, 15 years ago, even, or whatever. I mean, everybody did, you know, it was, it was totally normal. I mean, you walk into gas stations and buy these things. I mean, you know, you don't generally walk into gas stations and see 4k movies sitting there. I'm not saying it, that there aren't, but you know, in general, that doesn't occur anymore. Like that, that, that industry is kind of falling away and I'm not saying it's a good thing. Um, and we had this conversation in a recent classic conversations episode that I put out for sovereign tech uh, that you can check out. But the point being, I mean, the simplest argument against 4k is just the raw amount of hard drives that you need. I mean, you'd have to run your own server farm to have a, a even half a lifetime of 4k content saved. No, thanks. So it's impractical in that sense. And again, there's no difference. You know, if you're in the right distance, And it's not even a matter of, oh, well, that's optimal or that. No, no, that's where you should be sitting so that you can appreciate what's actually fucking happening on the screen. There's no difference between 1080p and 4k, none, none, none. So I guess we should get into it. So, yeah, so basically torrenting 4k, I think is, is, uh, antithetical (laughs) to, to torrenting for one. Uh, and I mean, and ultimately for, you know, ownership of video files, it just doesn't make sense. Again, we we would all be running our own server farms, and yeah, hard drives are able to are getting better at holding more and more and more. But I mean, even a sixteen terabyte, even a thirty-two terabyte, I mean, you're lucky you're only going to be able to hold. You you know, it's not like going to be you know hundreds of thousands of movies or anything like that. You're you're lucky if you're going to hold I don't know a thousand or so. Just doesn't make sense. But so let's get to it. What is the real reasons behind four K? Why? Are you being told, ooh, 4K? Go use your, you know, go use your uh your, your tax check uh to go buy a new 4K TV, blah, 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 blah. You need 4K. You are meaningless, you are nothing if you don't have 4K. That's basically what you're being told all the time, either by society or the TV itself. Okay, what even though ironically the the commercial is probably selling it to you is in like 720p if you're lucky. But why are they doing this? two reasons and we've talked about them before, but let's bring them up. Okay. So I hope without even getting into these, because these are, you could argue that they're somewhat theoretical. I don't think they are, but you could argue that. Okay. I hope everything that I just described to you explains why this technology is just horseshit. It's, it's pure. It's all it is, is marketing horseshit. There is no, Appreciable difference for the consumer, none. I mean, again, even with with Blu-ray, we can make arguments about you know larger discs and all this different stuff. And uh, you know, I mean, there, there's there's some arguments that like 1080p is the maximum picture that you can really take advantage of. Again, when you get within that six feet rule and the average size of a television screen, okay, when you do that math, that that's that's where it tops out. So an argument could be made for Blu-rays but really DVDs are just, are still just as legitimate today as they were 20 years ago. Okay. So I hope we explained our position here. (laughs) And I think that very easily just puts the nail in the coffin on 4k that it is, it is a bullshit tech. So what's it really about? Here's what it's about. It's about kind of how we started this conversation that you have a lot of tech companies from Samsung to whoever that they got very used to, uh, very rapid developments that occurred during the, what I call the DVD revolution. And because there were genuine advantages for the consumer, they didn't have to market it too much. And the consumer just bought in because it was actually great for the consumers consumer facing, as they say. They got used to those profits. And when they tried to, okay, let's come up with the next technology. Right. And you had the big battle between HD DVD and Blu-ray. You know, that was the battle for 1080p. You could, you could almost call it that. When that happened and it was almost ambivalent. Basically what put it over the top was the PlayStation three, because it was also a Blu-ray player and people kind of bought into it, but then there wasn't the same excitement around because it wasn't as much of a quantum leap as DVD was from VHS. Um, then in much shorter order, they felt like, okay, we've got to come out with the next thing. We've got to come out with the next thing too. And it was all just to continually reap in these same profits, but they were trying to reap in profits. Similarly to like how Netflix is trying to sell you 4k and charge you more for it, but it's actually worse than 1080p at home on disc. Same idea here. They're, <laughs> they want the same profits, but without actually coming up with something that is game-changing like DVD was compared to VHS. So there's that the other part to it comes down to Comcast. That is, is that if you get used to and hooked on 4k, the amount of data usage via whatever internet connection you happen to have, whether it's your phone, ISP, whatever. Okay. And that ISP, you know, would be Comcast. And of course they offer phone service as well, but they want to be able to charge you and this is already happening and will happen more. They want to charge you per gigabyte. If you get, you know, sucked into 4k, how high do you think your internet's bill is going to be just to watch a fucking TV show in a month? Exactly. Through the roof. The companies that offer you a data connection would love for you to be on 4k. They'd love for you to be on 4k because also it makes an argument for 5g, right? To have that more consistent stream of content. Okay. But all of that is to charge you more, but again, you really, you're not, you're either getting something no different or arguably you're getting something far less than what you could have. If you just went out and bought the Blu-ray for 10 bucks uh, and you could have it forever and you don't have to stream it at all you don't have to worry about the data connection at all. And you don't have to fall into a subscription service at all. Is there anything wrong with wanting to, uh, you know, make a profit? No, nope. But there's nothing wrong. As I often say, there's nothing wrong with providing value either. And I would argue the real way to make profit, to make amazing profits kind of like what happened during the DVD revolution is to offer value. There's no value here not really. It's all a marketing trick. There's no value. Value is not a dirty word. Profit's not a dirty word, but they work best together. And you are ultimately not getting the value out of this profit deal. That's what's behind 4k. That's what's going on. That's why everybody wants you to buy into it. How do you resolve this? What's the answer? Well, if we don't do 4k, what do we do stallion? get off the just don't don't fall for it don't buy and you don't have to don't don't buy the new uh you know the new 4k tv buy the 1080p one that costs half the price if not even less and is solid as a rock because it's tested technology now for you know a good decade don't buy into it keep buying blu-rays. If you know, if you, if you're like me and you love movies and there's lots of shows and other things that you really love, fine. Then, you know, stick with the level of which, I mean, they all make DVDs of everything still, you know, like even that, that trick where, cause that, that was something they tried to do with blu-ray as well. Is that uh, for example, like Spartacus, the show Spartacus, great show, show Spartacus on blu-ray. It came with extended scenes in the episodes And that was clearly a way to, you know, to sell Blu-rays. Okay. Um, And in fact, that's ultimately what got me on Blu-ray. Otherwise I'd probably still be watching DVDs. Um, And I I still do watch DVDs, you know, where it's necessary. Uh, But bottom line being is that that trick of where you get very specific, I don't know, features like special features or something like that on a Blu-ray as compared to DVD, that's no longer true. In fact, even like with 4k movies, the special features disc will often just be a Blu-ray and it'll be the same disc that you got with the Blu-ray version of the movie that came out five years ago. So again, it's all bullshit. It's all marketing. 4k nonsense. So there we have it. Okay. We knocked down, <laughs> we knocked down uh 5g and we know now for a fact, it has nothing to do with the consumer. Okay. Verizon admitted it. And then 4k total bullshit, total marketing bullshit. There is no difference for you as the consumer. Now I had an entire story on dumb cities that I planned to, uh, to get into, but I have other subjects. I want to get into in this episode. There's important things, other segments I want to get into in this episode. So I am going to, I guess this will be almost a trilogy. Okay. Because all of this, you could kind of argue leads to a smart city. But I think that's a concept that we also have to put to bed and we are going to not just put it, to bed <laughs> we're going to put it in the coffin and we are going to put that in the coffin in the next episode of sovereign tech. We won't have time to get into it here because it is a very, very long conversation to get into. And, uh, there are a lot of people and I'm pleased by this. There are a lot of people doing great work in basically stemming the tide against the smart city. Be right back. Above an extinct Japanese volcano, four heavily armored black helicopters spin through the sky
0: in a dance of death. Their target, one man in a flying arsenal that fits in two alligator suitcases. The odds, four to one. They haven't got a chance. Now.
1: Sean Connery is James Bond in Ian Fleming's You Only Live Twice. Sean Connery, James Bond, 007. You Only Live Twice. An Albert R. Broccoli, Harry Saltman presentation in Panavision Technicolor from United Artists, a Transamerica company. You Only Live Twice. And twice
0: is the only way to live. Issues of privacy, security, and social engineering. It's HackSec.
1: It is time for HackSec, where we talk issues of hacking and security, and, well, really, privacy comes into a lot of this. Uh, We have a remarkable, and not in a good way, a remarkable story to get into for HackSec that I really think is important. Um, It would have played well with the dumb cities uh, conversation, but again, we'll save that for the next episode. Uh, Something else that's going to be coming up and (laughs) maybe this falls under dumb me uh, and certainly not very privacy respecting, but I actually ended up getting my hands on uh, and this is through an early access program, of course, uh, but I ended up getting my hands on the Amazon halo which we did a full breakdown, at least on the announcement of it, when it happened uh, a few episodes ago, um, I, you know, the things I do for my listeners, <laughs> I actually asked in the telegram group. I was like, okay, you know, do you guys think I should end up getting one of these? Amazon said I could get one. Should I get one? I don't know why Amazon's being so kind to me these days, maybe because they want me, I don't know. It can't be hush money, <laughs> but anyway, uh, I do have one. And, uh, I will do a review, you know, whether or not I'm going to keep it, that that's a whole other conversation, but I will certainly do a review of it. And, uh, you know, we're, we're going to see it's, it's funny. In fact, I, I shared this when it came in, I shared this in the, in the sovereign tech telegram group as well. By the way, if you want to join that link is in the show notes, can't miss it. Um, I, I, I cause like when I opened the book on it, when I was opening the box, the book even said, because when we talked about it, if you remember, I was like, this is so much. I even played clips from demolition man, you know, where Stallone was like swearing at the machine and it was fining him for saying a swear word and everything, uh, in the booklet at the end of the little booklet to get you quick-started with the Amazon halo. Uh, it actually says be well, just like they did in San Angeles in, uh, in demolition man. I was like, fuck, it's almost like they're in on the joke. <laughs> like They know what they're doing anyway, we'll review it. We'll get into it. And I'm sure it's going to be an interesting uh, conversation. It's already been an interesting conversation, you know, just in, in the house, but <laughs> anyway, let us move on because that's not, we're not here to talk about Amazon right this second. We are going to talk about Google. And this is a story. It was actually shared by a tremendous sovereign tech listener in uh, the Telegram group, actually a couple of weeks ago or about a week ago, I guess, uh, because it's from October 31st, 2020. Uh, by Business Insider from Chris Stokel Walker. Here's the headline: What it's like to get locked out of Google indefinitely. Now I'm going to read through some of this, and I am highlighting this here because we have said many times what happens when you are constantly signing into everything with Google. What happens when all of the services you use are basically Google and I mean we're talking everything from maps to docs to gmail to you know hangouts whatever at the time I mean whatever what happens when you lose access to all that and you know could that even happen guess what because a lot of people hey I like I, said, I admitted it earlier I used to be a Google fanboy I'm still you know I I think Chromebooks are a very interesting platform uh I've been very bullish on them for a while they're certainly a secure platform as far as you know, uh, laptops and desktop computers go, you know, relatively in the, in those realms. But I had a lot of people, you know, who've given me shit over the years about this saying, Oh, Oh, Google would never do that. They'd never just like wipe out an entire person's account and make them lose access to everything. Oh, Oh, contraire. Again, from October 31st, 2020, let's do it. When he received the notification from Google, he couldn't quite believe it. Clareth, I think I'm pronouncing that right. Clareth, maybe a game developer who asked not to use his real name. Okay. So Clareth, that's why I've never heard that before. Not a real name moving on, or maybe it is, but I just didn't know it woke up to see a message that all his Google accounts were disabled due to quote, serious violation of Google policies end quote, his first reaction was that something must have malfunctioned on his phone. Then he went to his computer and opened up Chrome Google's internet browser he was signed out. He tried to access Gmail, his main email account, which was also locked. Quote, everything was disconnected. End quote. He told business insider. Claroth had some, uh, some options he could pursue. One was the option to try and recover his Google data, which gave him hope, but he didn't go too far into the process because there was also an option to appeal the ban. He sent in an appeal. He received a response, uh, the next day <laughs> took until the next day stallion breaking in on that. I mean, I I can tell you at least as far as my work account goes, uh, you know, with, with with certain clients, if I was out of, out of pocket for 24 hours, Oh, I I mean that, 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 that just can't happen. You, You, you can't do that. Now the problem there isn't necessarily with Google. The problem is that civilization has gotten used to instantaneous response, and all this other, you know, kind of crap that the, the interconnected world has brought on, that's the real problem. As far as that goes, And I'm not going to necessarily blame Google for that other than that they empowered it, but okay. Because normally, you know, speaking of decades ago, you know, if you didn't hear from somebody for, you know, a day or even five days or something like that, not that odd. You know, they, they, okay, well, I'm sure they'll get to it. It's not that pressing, but today, oh no, 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 no. If you don't get a, in a response in five minutes, let alone five days, if you don't get in five minutes, what is going on, uh, is, is my, you know, representative or whatever, you know, uh, not working for me or it blah, blah. I mean, it's just a fucking mess. Moving on. He received a response the next day, Google had determined he had broken their terms of service, though they didn't explain exactly what had happened and his account wouldn't be reinstated. So they said, no, we can't reinstate you. Google has been approached for comment on this story. Uh, and they have not responded, by the way. And this came out on October 31st. Keep going. Claroth is one of a number of people who have seen their account suspended in the last few days and weeks. In response to a tweet explaining his fear at being locked out of his Google account after 15 years of use, others have posted about the impact of being barred from the company that runs most of the services we use in our day-to-day lives. Quote, I've been using a Google account for personal and work purposes for years now. It had loads of various types of data in there, end quote, said Stephen Rothley, a software developer from Birken. Birkenhead, uh, United Kingdom quote, one day when I went to use it, I found I couldn't log in End quote. roughly checked his backup email account and found a message there informing him. His main account had been terminated for violating the terms of service. Quote, it suggested that I had been given a warning and I searched and searched, but couldn't find anything. I then followed the link to recover my account, but was given a message stating that my account was irrecoverable End quote, Roughly lost data, including emails, photos, documents, and diagrams that he had developed for his work. Staying breaking in quick. I mean, kind of a sidebar in all of this is how we've said many times, don't count on anything from Google. What has Google recently done? Uh, of course, I think it just came out a couple of days ago that they are no longer offering unlimited storage. Boy, this smells like OneDrive gate from Microsoft, but they are no longer offering unlimited storage of standard definition photos through Google Photos, which they did for free. Now you have to buy a Google one subscription for that. There's probably a whole story that we could tell around there that has to do with why they wanted all those pictures in the first place to train an AI, but we won't go there. Bottom line being, even when you're on the up and up, you can't rely on Google services, but moving on, let's see my account and all its data is gone. And quote uh, roughly said one Google worker posted an exasperation on October 12th, that his husband's account had been, uh, locked and he wouldn't be able to re uh, this is a Google worker. Uh, he wouldn't be able to regain access. Others profess to have been barred from using Microsoft services while losing access to Facebook accounts can be equally damaging and stallion breaking it. Of course, this is true for any of these. When you rely on any of these all in one style platforms, you know, be it office or well, now it's Microsoft 365 or even Facebook, right? Especially if you use Facebook login all over the place. And I would argue this is probably also all very true for Apple. Don't think that running well, oh, Google's so bad. I'm going to run to Apple. I mean, that's like, you know, that's like saying, well, gee, uh, I'm tired of L. Ron Hubbard and Scientology. So I'm going to go follow the Pope. Okay. You just jump cult leaders. Nice job. Reading on quote, This is just how life is when you're dealing with trillion dollar faceless corporations and quote, said Aral Balkan who has long campaigned against the control of our data and lives by big tech firms. Quote, it's just one reason why it's so important that we fund and develop human scale, small tech. I like that phrase. Human scale, small tech is an alternative to the stranglehold of big tech on our lives. End quote. Uh, Here's the subheader. It's a little like having your house burned down. We've spent the history of the modern internet, putting more and more of our lives online from checking in at restaurants and reviewing museums to relying on Google to navigate us to hotels where we take photographs that we post to Facebook and Instagram. There's very little left in our lives that big tech doesn't touch. We transact business emails through Gmail and trust Skype owned by Microsoft to handle our video calls with family and friends. We don't realize that. And un- we don't realize that until we lose access when key services like Gmail go down, we're left listless. And in extreme circumstances, when we're booted out from accessing services through bans, the impact becomes even more devastating. You only need look at what Claroth has lost for an indication of the kind of data we give up to big tech firms. Quote, I'm still trying to piece together everything that I did lose. Uh, I'm slowly realizing over time just how much stuff is, quote unquote, missing, end quote. There are the obvious things like access to Gmail, YouTube, and Google Calendar. The game developer has lost reminders of birthdays and anniversaries. Quote, it's going to lead to some more awkward conversations, end quote, he said. But it's not just access to his work emails that he's lost. Quote, a fair amount of software licenses get delivered by email, especially audio software, which is ex- which is expensive. Uh, I have products from over two dozen different companies, so it's probable I've lost a fair amount of those, given I, have also, or I also have no access to the email they are registered with, end quote. Then there are other services he's lost access to Clareth logged into many apps and services using his Google account, which he doesn't have access to anymore. Quote, if they're paid, I'll have to buy them again. If I switch phones, uh, the music he purchased through Google music has also disappeared. Quote, the app took it upon himself or upon itself to delete all the downloaded music I had had on my phone end quote, this is one of those reasons where why don't I use streaming services? Because All it takes is for your fucking account to get banned or even the account that you logged into that account with to get banned and then you're fucked. Yeah, you can buy it again, but all of that work. And I mean, I know how some people get about their Spotify playlists. And I mean, I appreciate your passion for the music, but you're playing with fire. Reading on and most notes, the developer jotted down on his phone were stored through Google keep which is also gone. Quote, it had a lot of brainstorming for serious and personal projects, as well as other important notes that I scribbled just as reminders. Usually most of which I can't really recall at all. He said, I mean, hell, you know, to, to, to give some sympathy to Claroth here. That's basically what Google tells you to do. Look, write it down, put everything in keep, take a picture of it. That way you don't have to think about it. Well, until you lose access to your fucking Google account. quote, frankly, my memory is not that good. And well, that's one of the reasons I had all these services that Google offers me. End quote. He added the developer feels betrayed by the company for shutting off access to vast swaths of his digital life in an instant with little logical recourse. Quote, it feels like getting baited by all the convenience that Google offers only for Google to use your data as it pleases and possibly take it all away with no prior notice. End quote. He said, worse. He's worried it could happen elsewhere. Quote, it feels debilitating that there's no way to even prevent this in the future. No matter what I do or who I choose to do quote unquote business with, there will always be a risk of losing it. End quote. He feels anger too. Quote, I'm extremely angry at Google for just completely locking me out or deleting all my data without a single notice, losing money, data on personal projects, contacts, so much. End quote. The lack of transparency about how he broke their terms of service also has him worried. Quote, I keep thinking there has to be a reason they've suspended me even though it could be just some algorithmic glitch or something. It's difficult to shake this feeling given that Google practically has mountains of data on me. I'm also angry at myself for not having even thought of the possibility that I could lose my Google account with everything in it and accounts linked through Google. Apparently I'm not alone in this blind faith though. Hopefully that changes end quote. And there it is folks. It happened. It happened. We know how it affects the person. I mean, in some ways, I feel like we're still at a, a halfway point between where you need a Google account or you, you know, you need a smartphone that has all these Google services or, you know, Apple or whatever. I mean, pick toss in any tech giant you want here because the abstract notion is the same. So we're still kind of at a halfway point where you can kind of, where you can sort of recover from this, but I could, I can imagine a future not too far away where this kind of thing happening would be positively devastating, devastating. And you can say, well, oh, but people would rise up. They'd rally around it. Senators would get involved and I'm sure that they would try and pass a law. Well, like I just told you, if something like this happened to me, I mean, that talk about devastating that in 24 hours, not having communication with certain clients that could be life altering for me and the client that cannot happen. You understand? I appreciate, even though we don't know what his real name is, Claire honesty in the matter saying that, you know, I just never thought about it. I never thought, well, shit, I could lose all of this. However, you can, and I have been saying that for nearly the decade that this show has been going on. Uh, Not all of it, because when the show started, <laughs> for the first year, year, year and a half or so, uh, you know, I was a bit of a Google fanboy. I don't mind admitting that, but I learned my lesson and have been worried about this, and for lack of a better term, very much preaching about this since that time that this could happen. The fortunate thing is, is that actually right now it's very easy to keep this from happening to you. You don't rely on Google services. You don't rely on Microsoft services. You don't rely on Facebook. Don't use Facebook. You don't rely on Apple. You don't rely on any of this. Don't rely on Amazon either watching you. No, they are not me. I'm not that kind of freak. They are. The solutions are simple and not only that, but there are companies that, uh, frankly do fairly nice money on the affair. And I'm glad that they do, uh, because they deserve it for doing it. Um, you can set up your own little cloud at home. You can set up a NAS, a NAS that because you can, you know, a lot of people I think would hear this and they would say, Well, yeah, but ultimately it all comes down to the ISP. I mean, if the ISP blocks you, you're totally fucked. No, 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 no. Getting a date, getting a data connection, that's not the hard part, (laughs) right? Like there's a million ways to get yourself a data connection somewhere. That's fine. I'm not saying that you even have to lose access to you know all the advantages that you feel like you have through the cloud. I mean, yeah, it's fucking nice to have multiple terabytes of music at my command via Plex. That's great. Right? Because it's on my NAS. It's awesome. But that's just it. It is, this is, look, it, it's not theoretical anymore. It happens and it happens a lot. It's not a fluke. It's not, it didn't just happen to one person. It has happened to many where, and for no good reasons or for no reasons, really well explained, Accounts just get whoop, turned off and no, you don't get to access them anymore. Fuck your data. You're done. Sign put on a helmet. Have a nice day. It is not theoretical. You can know when I warn about storing your data with these companies or relying upon them, especially for like making your livelihood or something, you know, and I know a lot of people, you know, uh, who, who do great work, uh, novelists, you know, authors and whatever, and they're all rocking in Google Docs. Oh, hell, please don't. They're going to take your book away. They're going to take all your notes away. and You've got not, you have no recourse, most likely, or at least I wouldn't count on it. But if you're running your own, you know, if you're rocking your own, I don't know, whatever, it, it could be a Synology NAS, I think that those are fine. If you want to go a lot more open source so that you know you're going to be able to access it whenever you want, no matter what the fuck happens at the company that maybe runs the NAS software uh, or, you know, the, the the operating system for the NAS or whatever, um, you know, go with TrueNAS which, uh, I mean, that used to be free NAS. Now it's true NAS go with true NAS. That's fine. Great option. Uh, I mentioned earlier, I talked about running Nextcloud on a raspberry PI. Go ahead, do that. But at least when you do that, it's all open source and you have 100% control of that software or of, of that data and that software. Yes. But of that data, you do what you want with it. No one can come and take it away from you unless they're going to physically take your hard drives away from you or your, your NAS away from you or your computer away from you. And if that happens, well, okay, everybody's screwed kind of when that happens. And then you got to think about that. There's always something that can get kind of taken away from you, but the, for fuck's sake, at least you ultimately have control. And it's not an arbitrary affair. Like it is when you're counting on Microsoft and Google and Apple and whoever else to somehow take care of your data. Fuck them. You now have no reason if you thought you did before, you didn't before, but if you thought you did, you now have no reason to rely or trust these companies with your data. None. Just like when, I mean, in the past year, when there have been multiple occasions where Windows 10 updates had deleted user data off of, you know, off of their, um, you know, off their, their laptops or whatever their, 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 main machine was. That's it. That's end of story. Do you, do you get this in the tech world? This has been true for, I mean, I know we've been saying that the, the word decades a lot in this episode, but let's say it again. This has been true for decades. The instant a company loses your data. And that's ultimately what happened here. The instant a company loses your data or alters or fucks your data, that company no longer deserves your business. That company no longer deserves you as a consumer, as a client, as a customer. And we have very skewed perceptions of what that relationship in business is supposed to look like. The business, it is supposed to be an honor to serve you, the customer, client, consumer. It is not your honor to deal with Google. It is theirs to deal with you. But I think most of us have that perception the other way around. And that's a big part of the problem. Data is being lost. The instant that happens, you're done with whoever the fuck caused it. And there are, look, all those solutions I talked about, like a Synology NAS, or you know true nas like again if you still want to do cloud or whatever you know all these things or you know installing linux if you want to rock that boat you know whatever you want to do none of these things are hard anymore they're not anybody can do it anybody can do it stop making excuses take control of your shit don't trust these companies for anything i'll be right back with more cyber tech and i promise we will have some fun Woo. Hello, Sovereignati. As you know, Sovereign Tech proudly no longer puts content behind a paywall and makes thousands of hours and episodes available to you totally for free. But if you feel that stirring in your cockles or that special feeling in your heart, I beseech you, nay. I implore you to help the show out by donating. Frequenting our sponsors is key, but donations from listeners like you has always made the show go round and round. You can go to sovereigntech.com to set up an automatic monthly donation, or you can donate via the Bitcoin address in the show notes. And now you can even donate with the cash app at cash.app and use the money tag sovereign tech. So many ways to help out the show. And I'm honored by all of it, allowing us to build and be the future. Now, let's get back to the show.
0: Now entering the gaming grid. The latest gaming news, reviews, and retro culture, as only the man of tomorrow can deliver. And here's your host,
1: Brian Sovereign. Time for the gaming grid, because, you know, baby, we can't, we can't end on that note. (laughs) I don't like to end in a fit of depression, even though I don't think it's depressing. I think it's liberating, liberating your data, liberating yourself, because there's no difference. I mean, your digital life and your meat space life are so intertwined now. You can't lose the other. Not today. I mean, unless you want to go out and live in the woods, which my blessings. (laughs) I mean, absolutely. My blessings, baby. You go, I will, I will see you soon. (laughs) You understand? Anyway, in this episode, I really wanted during the climax, which we're not going to get to, I wanted to do uh, a, I wanted to have a conversation about Sean Connery. Uh, One of my favorite actors Um, played many a part of characters that I consider absolute heroes. And that's to say nothing of who Sean Connery was in his personal life. That's a whole other story. And I will separate the art from the artist in this case. Um, But I think I'll make that like its own Zomi one underground special. That's what I'll do for that. And and so that'll just be some nice bonus content to get into there. But the episode will stand as being dedicated to both. Uh, I mean, really just tragic losses in I mean even though Sean Connery hasn't done a movie in forever it's still well anyway Sean Connery and Alex Trebek I mean just unbelievable and and there's some comedy to be had certainly in 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 those two that I think both of them would have appreciated in those two uh <sighs> being in the news so close to each other we will just put it that way and uh, but anyway I will save that for a separate episode but I got something I want to I do want to talk about here for the gaming grid and that is because like I had teased and I want to live up to the tease and round it out in this episode. Um, I have the newest count console on the block. It's the newest one just came out in 2020. And I think it's the hottest ticket in town. Um, I, I'm so excited about this. Uh, I guess I'm, I'm kind of, <laughs> you know, I want to do a bit of a review for you, but I guess I'm kind of letting the cat out of the bag about how I feel about it because I love it. Um, I mean, it's, it's really, frankly, it's, it's powerful. Uh, I mean, you know, I don't know how many teraflops we're going to necessarily talk about here. Um, but I am, I am blown away, uh, at what this really can do, especially considering its size. So the newest console game console, video game console to get released in the world. Um, I have it, uh, picked mine up from, uh, from actually from Best Buy on, the, I I had a, well, anyway, there's, there's a conversation to have around getting it at at Best Buy as well. And and we will get into that. Um, But I did get it. uh, Well, pre-ordering it isn't exactly the right word, but regardless, I got it on November 13th, uh, the release day.
0: That's that's release
1: day for it. And I went to, I went to Best Buy. You were able to, even though I ordered it online, they allowed for local curbside pickup. I did that and I've got it and the console is I know you're waiting for this the console is the Game and Watch Nintendo Mario 35th anniversary edition uh, <laughs> I obviously I was playing that up you know that it was the PlayStation 5 or you know the new Xbox I have no interest in either of those systems that they just they don't do anything for me no thank you uh, so <laughs> But longtime Sovereign Tech listeners know how much I love these retro consoles. Um, This is a this really is a gorgeous uh, little device. Um, They net around $50 uh, if you can get your hands on one. Amazingly, you are able to get your hands on one. These are a handheld link is in the show notes if you want to check out more about it. Um, I actually put a link in the show notes that tells you about all the unlockable things you can do with it as well. We might talk about that a little bit. But regardless, um, this is, so a lot of people don't realize this is that Nintendo was in the video game business, uh, before the Nintendo entertainment system was a thing. They had handhelds called game and watch, which had this little character who you can actually play in, uh, certain super, uh, smash brothers games. Um, they they were little LCD screen, kind of like tiger electronics games. Um, and they, they were fun. They're, they're cool. You can actually get the collections of them. Um, on like on the Nintendo DS they came out with a couple of different collections of game and watch and so this is one that is and, and actually after the Nintendo Entertainment after the NES came out Nintendo would release like LCD versions they actually looked like Nintendo DSs you know 20 30 years before there was a DS or I guess 20 uh like for Legend of Zelda and I think there was a Mario one there's a bunch of different ones anyway so this looks like a classic game and watch now they call it game and watch because it is a little handheld system. Again, this is before they did the game boy. Okay. It was just a little LCD thing, but it basically, it has, it would have a game on it. And there was a bunch of different game and watch games uh, that what I think they call them, Mr. Game and watch. Now the character uh, that you you could get different ones, collect all the different ones. Um, but it would have a game on it. And like a juggling game or like flipping, I don't know, pancakes or whatever. Anyway, it'd have that game. And then it would have a mode where it could be a watch because that way it was useful to you, right? You know, a kid could keep it or an adult even in Japan could keep, uh, keep it in their pocket and they could pull it out to see the time or they could play a game useful, you know, for the 1980s or late seventies, early eighties, useful to most people. I think they would have found that to be rather amazing. So that's why they call it game and watch. Uh, Now this is again for the 35th anniversary of Mario, which has been being celebrated in 2020 in varying ways, right? We had the Mario 3d all-stars get released other announcements that have come out. Uh, We talked about all of those in a Zomi one underground special where we celebrated Mario's 35th anniversary also. Um, And I had mentioned that this is one of the products that I was very excited for and that I was looking forward to getting my hands on. Um, So this is obviously not just a, your you know, it, yes, it has an LCD screen on it, but it's not like the old, you know, tiger electronics type. Um, this is, you know, the best thing I could compare it to, it looks like the game boy micro if you remember those where it was the game boy Advance, but it didn't have like the, uh, like it didn't have a flip screen like the game boy, uh, Advance SP. Uh, but it was just a little one. It has the Famicom colors. So it's red and gold. Uh, and all it has on it is the original super Mario brothers for the NES or, you know, for the NES and it does have super Mario brothers lost levels or what was super Mario brothers two in Japan. And it also has a version of game and watch juggling, but it has Mario in place of Mr. Game and watch. Uh, and it does have a clock on it. And the clock is really nice. Like it actually changes uh, background tone, like the colors, by time of day. If it's at night, it's a little darker and all this, and Mario's jumping around and breaking blocks and everything. And it's, you know, it's kind of like a glorified, you know, it's a screensaver of of a type. Uh, If you leave it plugged in and it uses USB-C, I got to give Nintendo credit for that. I didn't expect that. Uh, That's nice. Of course, I'm sure they thought, well, you know, people could use their switch charger to charge this thing. Yeah. Maybe they thought that way. I don't know. But anyway, uh, if you have it charging, the, the, the clock will stay on the whole time. Um, I mean, you could turn it off too, but while it's charging, um, if you, you know, switch it to timer and it's not plugged in, the screen will turn off after a certain amount of time, but otherwise you could just leave it as a very nice animated clock, you know, sitting on your desk, if you really wanted to, um, the, it has a control, uh, you know, it has a nice D pad on it, the B and a button, all very comparable to the nest, uh, the nest controller. Um, otherwise very simple. It has a power button it does not have a volume button at all. Uh, you have to control volume and brightness within the game. I mean, there's three buttons. There's the button for game, which lets you select the game time, which sets it to the clock, and then pause and set, which lets you either pause the game. Uh, you know, it functions in varying ways, but it's also one of the ways that you change the brightness of the screen or the, um, you know, or the volume. Now, the only real negative I have for this thing is that, I mean, and the sound that comes out of it is fine. Like it just has a little speaker on the, uh, the left-hand side of it, but it doesn't have a headphone jack and there's plenty of room. It's not that slim. I mean, this is small, you know, only a few inches by a few inches, uh, even smaller than a 3ds by a long shot. Um, I really wish it had a headphone jack. That's that, that part's kind of disappointing to me, but that's the only feature that in any way I feel like I'm missing. Um, the screen is small, but very sharp. I mean, it's just a couple inches by, you know, an inch and a half or so. I mean, very, very basic stuff. Um, it could have been interesting if they put, uh, the deluxe version of super Mario brothers from the game boy color on this, but I know everybody feels that that game's a bit of a challenge because you don't see everything happening on the screen. I'm not complaining about that. Uh, and you know, is it kind of crazy to spend 50 bucks, to play two games that are available in a million other ways, even on the Nintendo switch or wherever, uh, you could make that argument. This is def, this is not like a necessity. There's nothing about it. Even the game and watch game on it, the juggling game, none of this is a necessity. This is purely for fun, but here's the rub. And my argument for, you know, for really owning one of these one is, is that to this day, many, you know, 35 years later, I, or, well, it hasn't been that long, almost that long, but over 30 years later, let's say it that way. I still play the original super Mario brothers over and over and over again. It's very much a comfort food game for me. Basically when, when I don't want to think about things, I mean, I can just pop on super Mario brothers and I just play it by reflex and it feels good to do so. Um, So this is something that I would just pick up because it just instantly goes into Mario brothers. Great. You know, that that's awesome. Um, I will say, so it does do the eight bit version of lost levels, which not everybody's used to because most people in America anyway, played lost levels in super Mario all-stars for the super Nintendo, which was a 16 bit retrofit. Um, so that's, that's nice. And I will say this is, if I were to give this any kind of like compliment or like really like a practical compliment, this is definitely, I think the best way to play lost levels. I know you can play it on switch online, but it's also online and you have to have an internet connection to do so. Again, it's a bit of a stretch, I know, but that's like the one thing I could say if you really wanted a really like that reason, but 50 bucks granted, you know, in 1987 or 88 or whatever, you know, if you wanted to buy lost levels or super Mario brothers two, what it was originally super Mario brothers two, you would have paid 50 bucks. So I guess you could kind of make that argument there, but that, that's stretching things. Um, there anyway, it, it does beautifully the D pad and you know, the A and B buttons all feel rock solid, feel great. It controls really, really nicely. It is a little small for my hands. And I often find my index finger to hold the system steady in my hands. I often find my index finger covering the speaker. Just another situation where I really wish it had a headphone jack. There's no good reason that this shouldn't have had a headphone jack, but that's fine. Uh, I mean, it doesn't really take away from, from much of, you know, from the experience overall. And again, there's plenty of other places, be it on my three DS on my switch, on my computer, even where I could play the original Mario brothers, uh, you know, and could easily plug in a pair of headphones without a problem. So not that big of a deal, Uh, but there's a lot of unlockables in this uh, to where you can unlock hard mode. You can set up infinite lives. There's, there's lots of little things that you can do, uh, Nintendo, I put a link in the show notes for all of them. Um, Nintendo was, I think really brilliant to include a lot of little secrets into this just to give it, make it feel like there's, there's something more to it. Uh, like you can actually in the game and watch game itself, you can switch. I believe you can switch to where, uh, it can be Luigi instead of Mario, just fun little touches like that. That's, that's the, the very, you know, heart of Nintendo. In fact, I was really amazed. Uh, I'll try and put this in the show notes. Uh, The verge did a write-up review on this and they got it. Everything that I've said about Nintendo forever, they basically laid out like the headline for it here for their review. Nintendo's new game and watch handheld proves the company goes its own way. Who needs next gen consoles? And the whole article is basically saying what I've always said is that Nintendo just doesn't care what the competition's doing most of the time. They just keep doing it things their own way. All they care about is people having fun and all that. And that's the right attitude. And yeah, I think it's almost ironic. It's certainly ballsy for Nintendo to release a little handheld console within days of when, you know, the new Xbox and the PlayStation five come out. (laughs) I just, it's a very Japanese way of giving those companies the finger in my opinion. And I love it. <laughs> I think it's, you know, cause they're so polite and, but they're like, you know what? Fuck you. <laughs> I just think it's so great not to be outdone. I mean, technically Nintendo released the console, right? Sure. It's a little handheld jobber. It only has a couple games on it, but technically it's a console uh, so, or three games actually. Uh, I I love it. I I think it's so great. Now the real, and and when this first came out, we talked about this. The real reason that I got this, and normally I don't like to operate under these uh, conditions where, okay, if you want X, you need to buy Y. I hate that. And there's a lot of game companies who try to try to operate that way. Next year we are dealing with Zelda's, you know, with links anniversary. Okay. For the Zelda franchise. While this game is, you know, it's hard for me to say to you, unless you're a Nintendo diehard, it's hard for me to say to you, yeah, you should go out and buy this. There's nothing wrong with it. Not really. And it's fun for what it is and it's great, but I can imagine, I mean, there's so many people who bought like the NES, which are the NES classic, which didn't cost much more than this. Um, and they stopped playing it within a couple days you know, how could I tell you that? Oh, well, here's something with only one game on it and you know, or, you know, or three, you know, how could I make that value prop to you? This is just a collector's item or just something fun for Mario fans. You know, like I I understand that. However, there are other franchises with anniversaries coming up where their games getting put onto a, uh, you know, in a handheld package in a game and watch package, like Mario did this year would actually be a, there, there are a lot of very practical arguments to make for those. Um, for example, and it's the easy one, Zelda putting, uh, you know, the original legend of Zelda as well as Zelda two on a game and watch. That's something that I think people would play the fuck out of. I mean, and you would play that a lot. Because, I mean, not that those games are terribly long, they are no Final Fantasies, but a lot of people skipped Zelda 2, and to have it in a really nice handheld package like this and so easy to get to, um, yeah, I, I think there's a proposition there. And And even to get through the original Legend of Zelda, which still plays just as fun today as it did, you know, over 30 years ago. Uh, there are other franchises where I could see this being a thing where, where I, I could see this being very interesting, uh, even Metroid, but I would do, I would do that a little bit differently, but I think that that could get interesting that basically I am more interested in other franchises that Nintendo hopefully will be inspired to do this with based upon the very, what I imagine are actually pretty good sales of this device, because you know, when you're into Nintendo, you're into it. And when they're saying they're going to come out with new hardware, most people jump at the chance, sight unseen. Uh, and this is certainly one of those cases. I already know a lot of Sovereign Tech listeners went out and, and picked them up, and some of you were sharing pictures. Uh, <laughs> it was I shared a picture in there of mine, and I know others were sharing pictures of theirs. It was it was a lot of fun. Um, so anyway, yeah, and that's it. This is just this is just for fun. There there's nothing. There's really very little practical argument that could get made for it. Um, so the Mario game and watch links in the show notes, if you want to check it out, there's a couple of, uh, like the, the links with, um, all of the, the unlockables and all the little secrets and everything. I put that in there as well, as well as that right up from the verge that I think is very interesting to read because it, again, it says about Nintendo, what I've been saying about Nintendo for a very long time that they just play by their own rules, you know, and they're just all about, you know, putting smiles on faces, which is what I've loved about them for a very long time. So anyway, that's it for this episode of Sovereign Tech. Of course, more to come. 2020 is not over and episode 400 is hot on the heels. And we've got to do something. Anyway, do rate uh, and review the show on Audible, please. Uh, And of course, if you want to help out the show, you just go to SovereignTech.com. Frequent our sponsors as well as there's a donate page there. If you want to help out, I'm always honored by those. And I will see all of you in the next episode of Sovereign Tech. See all of you on the other side.
0: Thank you for listening to Sovereign Tech. And Osiris One Production. Now go out there and make some trouble.
1: Because you know what they say, that the most dangerous man in the world is the man against the status quo. And so you know woo, that I am the most dangerous man. It is the goldest the d- the d- d- fucker.
0: <laughs> no zoonoids were harmed in the making of this podcast.